This is Misdemeanor and Misconduct, the podcast. From Isolation Day, question mark, it's misdemeanor and misconduct, and I am Kennedy. Today I wanted to start the show with a story of failure, because I think if there's one way to become a beloved character in people's lives is that you have to rise up from the bottom. You have to have some sort of moment of of rocky bottom for everybody to cheer you on and think, yes, I want her to succeed. If you're just always succeeding, nobody wants that for you. Sorry to say. So I'm going to uh, share in this little moment with you so that we can all commiserate on the way that isolation is affecting our brains. I feel like it's a pretty common experience that we're all having where you have a run of really good days and then you kind of have a day where you're in a terrible slump. That happened with me. I had a fantastic weekend. I had the best couple of days that I'd had in a long time. Just feeling like, okay, I'm finding a rhythm. I'm settling into a flow here. I have a bit of a schedule. I'm figuring out ways to make this time productive and fulfilling. Which, by the way, you don't have to make this a productive or fulfilling time. You can do whatever is right for you, whatever is best for you to cope, whatever feels best. However you leave this feeling like, you know what? I made it through that and I'm all right. Do that thing. And sometimes that's just sitting and staring at a wall. Sometimes that's, I did a jigsaw puzzle for four days. We support that in this house. Under this roof, you do what you please. You do what you want. Today, Full beat, full glam. I did rollers in my hair. I have got a matte lipstick on. And you know what? All I'm going to do maybe is go for a walk in a forest later and potentially see the fox roaming near my house. I'm not going to see a soul. I'm not going to video chat with friends. It's just, that's it. I just wanted to do that for myself. And yesterday was not one of those days. I'd had my amazing days and I had done my research, fully planned out an exact schedule for when I was going to record and how I was going to go into that feeling like I had clarity and a personality. And uh, then it happened and I had no clarity. I had no personality. My words were dead. I was not great. And I was really unhappy with it. That's fine. But I've never done that before. I've never recorded something and felt absolutely like this has no place in the world, which is maybe a little egotistical to ever feel like you've done anything that has a place in the world. But for the most part, this is what we're doing. I'm used to this type of work. I don't put that much judgmental thought into it anymore because I'm pretty comfortable with what I do. And I was just like, oh God, that was not Oh, it's not something anybody needs to listen to. I was feeling really down. I feel like you could hear it. Didn't want to be that person. I don't want to deliver already hard to listen to information while sipping a tequila sunrise in a dark closet feeling terrible. That is just not what this is about. I don't want to, I don't want to experience it that way. And I don't want you guys to experience it that way. But I wanted to say that just because Getting this feeling that everybody's sort of experiencing the same thing and in a similar headspace has been really comforting throughout this. So there's that. Um, But now we're back and feeling much better, having a great day. No tequila sunrise in a dark closet. Today I have my water in a spacious garage where there's sort of unfinished projects everywhere. There's some windows being painted. There's some cupboards being painted. And I think the fumes are going to be very helpful for me today. 
All of that said, the way that I have been recording is just doing a batch of episodes at once, sitting down and recording and doing research sort of quickly. It's a bit of a quick turnaround, which is why the stories aren't as extensive as they sometimes are, because this is coming out every week now, and I will be doing that for the foreseeable future. So I'm just trying to get ahead of the game to allow myself some more time to put research into things. But I haven't actually mapped out when I record what's going up when, what order it's happening in, that sort of thing. So I didn't know that we were going to hit 30 episodes with the last batch that I recorded, but we did 30 episodes. That is 60 some stories and uh, it's pretty exciting. I know it's already been two years, so 30 episodes in two years isn't that much, but it's a milestone. It feels good. And just to stay topical, which will no longer stay topical, I did, in fact, watch Tiger King. I wish Jenna was here. Uh, we might, maybe we'll talk about it when Jenna is back, when we're back together, when we are resuming our lives. Because we had some thoughts, we had some experiences with it. I, yeah, I'll save those for when, I, when I'm back with my co-host. But I will say, yes, Carol Baskin did kill her husband. And I'm not a husband-killing apologist. I'm really not. But if a woman killing a man who started a relationship with her when she was about 18 and he was 22 years older than her is your biggest moral issue with that story, I'd say let's just take a second to look inside ourselves. Let's do some reflection. Let's maybe read the cliff notes of the entirety of Tiger King and say, is that really the biggest problem here? I would argue not. But we'll let that rest. You can sink into that feeling. Lean into it. Let me know how... Let me know how you're feeling about Tiger King, Joe Exotic, the whole crew. We do love a batshit story over here on Miss and Miss, and we will credit it with being that at the very least. So for today's episode, we are going to be taking a look at two Canadian cold cases. Now, I don't love cold cases. I find them to be, as a whole, pretty unsatisfactory. I do like that in stories where we have somebody who goes to prison or it's figured out that we can kind of get some sense of justice from that. Not having that just feels a little bit, I don't know, it feels strange sometimes to just present a story that is kind of just human suffering without any conclusion. But I know that that is an interest of a lot of people's, and there are a lot of cold cases in Canada. And it feels a little bit negligent to not take a look at those before we decide to venture outside of Canada. So I did some research into that. And the thing, yeah, the thing about cold cases too is that a lot of times the stories are a little bit shorter because we're working with lesser information. So that's why I'm going to be doing to today. So pop in your headphones, settle into your walk, your bed, your commute, whatever it is that you might be doing, and let's get into this. It was April 22nd, 1981, in the small village of Standard, Alberta. At 8.20 a.m., 15-year-old Kelly Cook received a phone call from a man who called himself Bill Christensen. He was asking about her babysitting services, which she did regularly around town, but something about the call from the unfamiliar man struck Kelly as odd. But she checked with her mom, who recognized the last name as a common one in the area, and the man claimed to have gotten her information from neighbors, so she agreed to take a job for him that night. At 8.30 that same evening, what was described as a full-sized, cream-colored North American car pulled up outside of Kelly's family's home and honked the horn. She said goodbye to her parents, and her mother watched as she got in the passenger side of the vehicle with the man. It wasn't long before her parents started to worry. Kelly was supposed to call when she arrived to Bill's, but the phone never rang and the call never came. When Kelly hadn't returned by midnight, her parents called the RCMP. 
Authorities contacted every Christensen family in town, but none of them had heard of a Bill Christensen. The phone call between Kelly and Bill that morning was traced to a local gas station. Every house in the village was searched, including abandoned buildings, but no sign or evidence of Kelly was ever found. Interestingly, in the days to come, one of Kelly's friends came forward to tell police she'd also received a call from a Bill Christensen on April 18th, just four days before Kelly. He'd also asked her to babysit, but she was busy and gave him Kelly's phone number instead. This call was traced to the Standard Hotel bar. The staff could clearly remember overhearing a man talking to a babysitter over the phone because he'd been rude to them when he'd asked to use it. According to rumors, a man called the local school just a month before Kelly's disappearance. He wanted information on a female student who appeared in the local newspaper as a part of their figure skating club. Can you imagine if that happened nowadays? The authorities would be called so quickly. And if they weren't, they should be. So it's unclear if the school principal gave out the girl's contact information, but it is said that the girl who spoke to Bill on April 18th was the figure skater in the newspaper and likely Bill's original target. Can you imagine the lawsuits that would happen if somebody disclosed that information these days? Whoo! Authorities also discovered that at 10 p.m. on the night of Kelly's disappearance, an operator received a call from a payphone about a 20-minute drive from Standard. The operator briefly heard a woman screaming, but then the call was cut off. On June 28, 1981, roughly two months after Kelly's abduction, a group of teenagers riding motorcycles discovered her body. She was in the Chin Lake Reservoir about two and a half hours away. Due to the advanced decomposition of the remains, Kelly had to be identified through dental records. She'd been bound with rope, weighted down with cinder blocks, and dumped into the reservoir. Her body was fully clothed, and the autopsy revealed no sign of sexual assault. One article claims that Kelly died of asphyxiation, but this cause of death was not widely reported and does not appear in the RCMP's available case file information. Her body had only been visible due to a drought that drastically lowered the lake's water levels. Chin Lake was dragged and searched by divers, but no more evidence was ever found. While Kelly's body was at a funeral home in Calgary, a man demanded to see her body. Even though he claimed to be a family friend, he was denied and eventually left. This man has never been identified, but authorities believe it may have been the killer. I don't know what sort of strange activity funeral homes are encountering on the day-to-day, but I feel like that is cause for concern. Hey, can I come in and see this 15-year-old's body? Hey, can you present me your license, social insurance number, and all your other personal information? To this day, the case remains unsolved, though over 2,000 possible suspects were interviewed during the investigation, and authorities believe that they have crossed paths with the killer. A few months after Kelly's murder, young girls in Canmore, Alberta reported receiving suspicious calls from a man seeking a babysitter. They could not remember his name, but the man said he'd pick them up at their houses. When they turned down his offer, he always asked for another babysitter's number. These calls were traced to a local payphone and were likely from the same man. At the time, police told newspapers they were sure that the killer was from the area. They also believed the crime was planned over the period of a month or two. And though it has since been removed from Kelly's case file on the RCMP website, a sketch of Bill Christensen was released and distributed at the time. You can also find it online if you're interested. It's just an old-school sketch with some glasses, but he was listed as approximately 30 to 45 years old, 5 feet 10 inches, medium to heavy build, an unattractive face with swarthy appearance, very weather-beaten face and hands, faces tanned and heavily creased, short, dark, but not black hair, nose with a heavy bridge that does not appear to be broken, with an abrupt, egotistical manner. There is a strange satisfaction in him being listed as an unattractive face. 
I don't know if you guys remember, but probably about a year ago, actually, I was interviewed by a radio station as a quote-unquote murder expert uh, when the Ted Bundy movie with Zac Efron came out. I can't remember what it was called. I also did not really like that movie, but they asked me if I thought Ted Bundy was attractive and we're just kind of talking about that strange thing with people's looks being tied into their heinous crimes. And it's just not something I care about. I don't care if he's attractive, who gives a shit, whatever. But something about him being listed as unattractive gives me some sense of satisfaction because you know that these people are looking at what's published about them. I'm sure that's part of the thrill. So I'm happy that he had to read Unattractive Face. I know there's much bigger things to worry about, but it's just a tiny, it's just like a tiny piece of glitter in a sea of black. So here are the theories as far as Kelly's case file goes. So what we know for certain is that she was killed by a man who went by Bill Christensen, but who was Bill Christensen? This is a list of men who were considered top suspects. Chester Keith Bordelon. In early 1981, he forced a 15-year-old girl into his car in Olds, Alberta, an hour and a half away from Standard. After driving around for a while looking for a hotel, she escaped the car and asked someone for help. A group of people managed to keep him on the spot until the police arrived and there are no reports of what happened to him after his arrest, although it is known that he died in 2008 in Morrow, Louisiana. Due to the time frame and location, he has been considered a person of interest. Robert Edward Brown. In 1981, Brown stabbed a 16-year-old to death in Okotoks, Alberta, and then burned her body. He also beat to death another girl in High River, Alberta. Brown was arrested in 1983 and suggested to authorities that he'd killed other people in Alberta and across Canada. At the time of Kelly's murder, he was living in Blackie, about an hour away from Standard. He refused to tell authorities about his other crimes and in 1986 was stabbed to death by a fellow inmate. Dennis Melvin Howe. Howe stuffed a nine-year-old girl's body in a refrigerator after raping and murdering her. He'd previously served time in prison for numerous assaults against women. Since 1983, he's been wanted by the Toronto police, but was last seen in Manitoba in the early 1980s, leading to the speculation that he may have been Kelly's killer. Terry Arnold, this piece of shit, Terry Arnold. Arnold lived in Strathmore, Alberta at the time of Kelly's murder, merely 30 minutes away from Standard. His pregnant wife had just left him after he told her that he would have intercourse with their child if they had a daughter. She ended up terminating the pregnancy due to fear. Why would you not just terminate him? Seems like a better option. He's believed to have raped and murdered dozens of girls across the U.S. and Canada. Some people believe Kelly could have been his first victim, even though he would have only been 18 years old at the time of the crime. He was often mistaken for a much older man. And as a final and sort of damning note, one of his ex-girlfriends said they'd hang out at a skating rink in Strathmore, where the photo of the figure skater for the local newspaper is believed to have been taken. In 2005, Arnold was found dead after overdosing on drugs and an apparent suicide. Okay. I'm actually really not one to speculate because I just think you have no idea. All options seem plausible. Anything seems plausible. And either way, it's just so unsatisfying. I just, yeah, I feel so badly for these families that don't get justice. And I found a Reddit that claimed to be from a friend of the daughter of the woman who at the time was the teenager that passed along Kelly's information. And I think that that is one of the most heartbreaking details of this case, is that this girl, who's now a woman, 
is left to feel responsible for putting her friend at risk because somebody in the world is a terrible fucking person. The wreckage that that leaves, people do terrible things when they're compelled to, and what they do along the way and the people they bring into that is manipulation and the responsibility of no one but themselves. But people who are involved in that can't grasp that. Deeply upsetting and saddening. And while I do have my doubts, I hope that all of the people who commit crimes like this, whether it's in this life or the life afterwards, I hope they suffer. And that's that on that. Yeah, about 40 years later, that is what we know of the case of Kelly Cook. Everybody take a sip of water, take a breather, and we will jump into story number two. On the morning of Monday, December 7th in 1953, the headline of the Toronto Daily Star read, Mass gunman abducts girl, 17, after slugging me, youth says. The mentioned youth who'd been slugged had shown up bloodied to the Scarborough Police Station the night before. He was 19-year-old James Wilson, and he was there to report that his 17-year-old girlfriend, Marion McDowell, had been abducted. The two had been parked in a secluded lover's lane when a masked assailant forcibly removed Marion from the car. James, of course, was the immediate suspect in this missing persons case, but it wasn't long before they determined that he would have been unable to inflict his head wounds on himself, so the search was on for Marion, the friendly East York typist, and her abductor. What ensued was the largest manhunt of its time in Ontario history. An intensive and exhaustive search began that night and continued for two months and then intermittently afterward. But with no trace of Marion, the search which involved prank calls and fake ransom demands and astrologers' predictions as well as a once-famed Scotland Yard detective all just added to the family's anguish and drove Marion's mother Florence to the point of mental breakdown and her brother to join the police force. 67 years after the fact and no trace of the young blue-eyed blonde woman has ever been found. But this is what we know of one of Toronto's oldest cold cases. Mary and Joan McDowell worked as a typist at a photo engraving firm. She lived with her family, her parents Ross and Florence, and her brother Ross Jr. on Oak Park Avenue in East York. She was by all reports your average girl of the time. Described in news reports as friendly, athletic, boisterous, and a bit of a tomboy, she enjoyed tennis, swimming, roller skating, pinball, and music, and riding as a passenger on motorcycles. Marion was known to follow fashion trends, and on that snowless Sunday night when she went for a drive with her boyfriend, Jimmy Wilson, she was wearing a white blouse, black wool skirt, and bobby sock-style ballerina shoes and simple jewelry, a silver wrist chain with a heart, and a ring with her initials MM on her left hand. Jimmy, whom she'd met a few months before, picked her up at her home around 7 p.m. for their fifth date. About an hour later, he parked his 1942 five-passenger Plymouth Coupe in a secluded lover's lane near a few other cars on Danforth Road in Scarborough. About 90 minutes after they arrived, a man hooded in a balaclava opened their car door, waved a gun, and told Jimmy to get out of the car. The masked man demanded Jimmy's wallet, and Jimmy handed it over, though it only contained $10. He was told to turn around, and the bandit searched Jimmy's pockets. The next thing he felt were two blows to the back of the head. Jimmy told the Toronto Star on December 7th, When I came to, I was in the back of my car in a field and the motor was running and Marion was sprawled on top of me. I think she was unconscious, she wasn't moving. Jimmy said he was slipping in and out of a daze. He recalled that the bandit dragged Marion from his car and put her in the trunk of another car parked about four feet away and then drove off through a narrow lane. Jimmy was able to recover well enough to crawl into the driver's seat and he tried to follow, but the other car had too much of a head start and he lost it. He drove home and told his father what had happened, and then he went to the Scarborough Police Station. 
This is one of those things that is sort of widely speculated about is him having gone home first and what that could mean for his potential involvement. Obviously, this is a cold case, so no one is ever convicted. So I can say that as far as we know, he's not involved in this. And I do think that that is an understandable thing for someone to do. If you've ever been in a situation where you are panicked beyond belief, I mean, a sort of unforeseen, I never thought this was going to happen in my life situation, you probably don't react the way that you think you will. I had a situation like that one time. I was like, I know exactly what I would do in an emergency. And I froze and I was not the person I thought I would be. And so now when I read things like that or I hear about people's reactions to things and they don't sound quote unquote standard, I feel like, yeah, people do weird things when they're freaking out and they don't know what else to do. And I think that we all sort of have a natural proclivity to not to downplay what we're experiencing or think, okay, this can't be that bad. This can't be this thing that I'm thinking it might be. It has to be something else. And then having to go to the police or do what whatever you do, like you have to then fully confront it. And this is a different situation. He was clearly attacked. I don't know how you would think, no, it's not that bad. But I can just understand how a person would be confused and not do what we would see as the right thing. That's all I got to say about that. So according to police reports at the time, Jimmy, who was a rigger at a Scarborough scaffolding company, said a man wearing a woolen balaclava opened the passenger side door and pointed what appeared to be a Walther 38 or a Luger handgun and said, this is a stick up, get out. No, it was probably more intimidating than that. He described the mass suspect as about five foot eight with a narrow face. Jimmy was at the station for eight hours. During that time, police searched his car and found his wallet containing $10 and Marion's blue coat, sweater, and purse. The rear seat was bloodstained, and he was taken to Toronto East General Hospital, where he required 17 stitches to close the wounds on the back of his head and had lost a pint of blood. Back at the crime scene, all blood samples taken were described as O-type, which was Jimmy's blood type. Marion's blood type was not known, though it was suspected she was also O-type. Police noted that tire marks indicated there were two cars in the field. Despite there being two types of O-type blood, the initial reports only mention type O blood, neither positive or negative, and later a case file on Marion's disappearance would report that type A blood was also found in the car. Police organized a search of the area that night. Marion's father, Ross, who was a foreman in a factory, stayed out all night and the next morning searching. East York police appealed to the public for information, and within 24 hours of Marion's disappearance, police set up a province-wide search. Posters were distributed to every police station in Canada, offering a $2,000 reward for information leading to Marion's discovery and capture of her abductor. Scores of volunteers came forward to search for the missing girl, including high school students who took the day off from classes on December 8th to search for Marion until dusk. In the days to come, volunteers dragged ponds, looked down open wells, and flew over forests and farmlands surrounding the crime scene. The search extended to cottage country with the thought that the kidnapper may be hiding out in one of the summer homes. After staying away for several days, reportedly mistakenly because he thought police told him to, Jimmy joined the December 12th search. In another attempt to crack the case, a story in the Toronto Star in January 1954 revealed that police inspector Harold Adamson had escorted Jimmy to Buffalo, New York, to undergo a lie detector test, which were not legal in Canada at the time. Quote, Jimmy passed with flying colors. This alongside the fact that police determined that Jimmy's blows couldn't have been self-inflicted, he was no longer considered a suspect. 
About four days after Marianne's disappearance, the family was tormented by phone calls. This is the kidnapper. I'm getting ready to murder your daughter, said one caller, before breaking into maniacal laughter. How fucking awful of a person do you have to be? Ooh. During several such calls, Ross Sr. could hear voices in the background saying, let's kill her now. People like that deserve to go to prison. Ugh. One person, hoping to profit from the family's grief, sent a note to police stating he had valuable information, which would be divulged if $50,000 in $2 bills was dropped off at the corner of Don Mills Road and Young Street. Marion's father arrived at the appointed place, but no one turned up. A well-known Toronto astrologer, Frederick Jackson, director of the Jackson Psychic School, said the stars revealed that Marion had drowned after being attacked and that her body may never be found. She lay in a river or creek near Stone Bridge, not far from where she was abducted. The astrologer described the suspect as a former false friend of short stature. Eight months passed with no leads in sight when the Toronto Telegram newspaper, at Marion's father's insistence, hired celebrated crime solver Robert Fabian, the former chief of London Scotland Yard, to review the investigation. Fabian had been a detective on the Yard's murder squad and considered a modern-day Sherlock Holmes. He'd penned a book, Fabian of the Yard, and a weekly television show of the same name had followed. The pipe-smoking detective arrived in Toronto on his way to a conference in New Orleans and a trip to Hollywood to consult on a film based on his book. Fabian visited and reconstructed the crime scene where Marion had disappeared. He was quoted in the telegram saying, No stranger in the area could have been responsible for Marion's attack and abduction, and concluded that the perpetrator must have been a, quote, sex fiend. The telegram had set up a tip line for Fabian to talk to witnesses, but nothing came of it. Meanwhile, police who were unimpressed by what they saw as nothing more than a publicity stunt were inundated with sightings of Marion. They followed up hundreds of leads, but to no avail. The Star, forever in competition with the Telegram, reported the police's belief that Marion had been murdered at the scene, as large quantities of blood were found in the boyfriend's car. The Star had previously withheld this information out of respect for the family. The Telegram countered with Fabian's opinion that Marion was still alive. On September 4, 1954, less than a month after the celebrated detective took Toronto by storm, he quit his search and left Toronto. Despite the media hype, the Star reported that police said Fabian failed to find a substantial clue. Years later, a retired telegram reporter would confess to making up all the copy material that had been attributed to Fabian, calling the detective's concocted investigation, quote, facts from a scotch bottle. Marion's parents never found out what happened to their daughter. Florence McDowell was put on heavy sedatives and suffered a nervous breakdown following the news of her daughter's disappearance. Within nine months, Marion's father moved in with his mother-in-law, while Marion's mother was in seclusion somewhere outside the city. Marion's only sibling, Ross Jr., who was 21 when she disappeared, would go on to join the East York Police Department the summer following Marion's disappearance. He would have a lifelong career, as well as an unending search for his missing sister. In recent years, the most you can really find on the case is that the area where the attack happened has been so urbanized that realistically, if her body was anywhere in the area, it likely would have been found. There is suspicion around the blood because police say that based on the amount of blood found, they believe Marion would have died at the scene, but Jimmy having lost blood as well and not knowing her blood type should make it sort of impossible to prove that. People do speculate that a modern-day investigation could shine a light on more possibilities of Jimmy's involvement, but by all accounts, his story does line up with what was found at the scene. If you scour Reddit posts of speculations, someone claiming to be a family member of Marion's 
clarifies that Jimmy was actually brought to Buffalo up to three times before they considered him uh, innocent. But they don't seem to be making a statement that they think he's guilty either. They also wrote that any time bones or a body is found in the area, her story gets dragged up again. And while they're thankful that she's not forgotten, they're glad her parents are no longer alive to have to continue going through it. And that is the story of Marion McDowell. Those are our cold cases for today. You can let me know how you guys feel about cold cases. If there's anything that you want covered as per usual, you can reach out on our social medias or um, personally at my Twitter, kcath23 or Instagram, k underscore Catherine. I wanted to end this on a more positive note. I find that whenever I'm experiencing something a little bit difficult or different, just something where I'm lacking perspective, which I think we're all lacking perspective right now because this is so unforeseen and we don't know how to handle moments like this. I find that I always end up finding something that brings me a lot of comfort, whether it's a show or a song or a book. I end up just with something that becomes like my outlet for comfort and and, and soothes me. So the thing that I have found is a podcast called Whimsically Volatile. I don't watch RuPaul's Drag Race, but I do watch the Trixie and Katya show on Crave and on their uh, YouTube channels. So I started listening to Whimsically Volatile, which is Katya's podcast or Brian McCook's podcast when he's not Katya. And I just have really been enjoying it. It's nice to get the perspective of someone who has had a really trying time in life and has a really great life point of view and to just, yeah, listen to someone say, hey, I went through all of this shit and here I am. I was on a walk the other day and this one episode came up that I felt like was really good information to be walking around with in my head and my heart right now. And it's something that I focus on a lot, which is the concept of you're the only person who has control over your life's situation. That's why it's your life. And just talking a lot about giving up expectation, give up the fear of result, just allow things to happen. And if you are being honest with yourself about what you want and your needs and your desires, things will happen as they should. And even when the outcome of that isn't the most desired thing or isn't the thing that you think you wanted, if you're doing it with honesty and not operating in a place of fear, then whatever you ta- whatever the takeaway from that is, is still a success just letting go and allowing things to happen and learning how to communicate to yourself and others what you want so that you don't just blink and sort of find yourself in situations and relationships that you don't want to be in. Because I think when we're dishonest with ourselves and with the people we have relationships to and with, that's when we start to blame and resent and create just these general feelings of unhappiness in our lives. And I think that's ultimately feeling upset with ourselves that we allowed ourselves to be in the position that we're in And yeah, that's just something that I think is really worthwhile to reflect on while our lives have sort of been placed on hold. And I know that that's to varying degrees for everyone and everyone's situation is so different. Some people don't have the privilege right now of being able to just sort of be sitting and be introspective. There's a lot of large difficulties and obstacles in people's ways right now. But if you are the person that is lucky enough and privileged enough to sort of have a time of reset right now and to think about these things, that is one of those things to think about and hold on to before you go back into your life and see what you actually want to go back to, see what you can let go of and who you can let go of. And if you're able to see it as such, this can be a time to sort of reset and refresh certain aspects of life. 
So I wanted to share that, leave that with you guys, and please let me know what's been getting you through. If there's a, sh a show, if you've been binge watching something, listening to something, I'd love to hear about it. And hopefully you can add misdemeanor and misconduct to the list of things that you've been loving. All right, I'll see you back here next week. And I'll still not know how to close this podcast. Goodbye, have a great evening.